after three years of absence, I'm getting a chance to go back to West Africa. I used to go about every year and then COVID came along and made life much more complicated. And I am thrilled to be able to get to go back here in about another week. Going to get to go see some old friends and get to have some delicious food from a part of the world that I love. So I'm really looking forward to it. That sounds great. I need to get to Africa and it hasn't happened yet, but I have faith that someday it will. Dude, Africa's a big place. Uh, you know, that's one of the things that I'm learning as we're doing some of these podcasts. I think this is our third one that we're actually recording that is from Africa. But ever, so far, the first two places are quite different. I'm looking forward to this one as well. Yeah, I think that's great. I think that's one of the coolest parts about what we've done so far is learning about the variety in Africa as opposed to uh, the way that I grew up thinking about it all being very homogenized, you know. So we have with us today, Archie Chankin. Welcome to the podcast. Good to have you here. Thanks. Good to be here. All right. So you you went to Burkina Faso. I think you're the first person to ever tell me about Burkina. And I'm, I'm kind of interested to know, like, how does somebody end up going to Burkina Faso of all places? Burkina Faso, we started looking for places to go and live. And one of the things that was very interesting about Burkina, Burkina, the former name of Burkina Faso is Upper Volta, and it's talking about the Volta River. And my wife and I first visited Burkina in 2000, and this was after spending eight weeks in Guinea, West Africa. Okay, we went through Guinea in the the 2000s, very, very low infrastructure, a lot of buildings incomplete, a lot of chaos, there's huge amounts of traffic issues. And we fly into Burkina and Burkina, we fly in during CS. So it is quiet. It's peaceful. There's no one around, you know, people aren't running up to you trying to get after you. And we looked at this place and like, this is such a contrast to the chaos we just left. And so that was one of the things that drew us, but also a few years later, we got to learning French, and there's this great French travel book, and it's called Discover Burkina Faso. And it starts out in the Pas de Plage, in the Pas de Forêt, in the Pas de, de Cacouette. So there's not a beach, there's not a forest, there's not coconut trees. So why would you go to Burkina? You go to Burkina because of the people. Burkina is called the land of the upright people. And these people are just so genuine. And I thought that was such an epic line on a, in a tourist book to say, you don't go for all the cool stuff. You go for the people. And that was one of the things that we went and we went for the people and we discovered a lot of cool stuff along the way. Such an interesting sounding country, Burkina Faso. Give us a picture of what is life like there. If I were there, what are some things that I would see? Much like many West African countries, so this is from probably Guinea-Bissau all around to Guinea and then uh, Liberia, Sierra Leone, all of those, Ivory Coast, Ghana, Togo, Benin, those are all kind of considered West African countries. And then you get to Mali and Burkina, Mali and Burkina, which are landlocked countries on this Western side. And so there's, it's a lot more arid. We lived kind of further south, and so there's a lot of trees would be a, a stretch, but there were some trees, and so, but there were also some very large trees. I don't know if you're familiar with the, the French uh, children's story, Le Petit Prince, and it's, there's a 
tree in there that would take over a planet. It's called the baobab tree. And we had them all over the place. And these trees, the trunks of these trees could get as large as 25 meters in diameter. Oh my goodness. That's a huge tree. Yeah. And the tops, it looks like the tops are the root system. And so it looks like someone took the tree and turned it upside down and all the roots are sitting up high. So what are some things that are unique about Burkina Faso? You know, you talked about all those countries in that area. What are some things that are really distinctive about that country as opposed to some of those others? One of the interesting things that I've, I've found about Burkina is the way the diversity of different peoples in and among Burkina. There's a map that we had done right before we left that, that was kind of burned on leather. And they took and they put this style of housing for each of the different regions around the country. And each of the different regions had a different kind of housing that they would build out of mud and twigs and other materials that were available to them, but they all had different kinds of structures. You know, down where we, we were, we were very square adobe. They could build levels of houses, so second stories onto houses. And so that was really kind of cool. But then other places you would have the grain elevators sitting up off the ground and they were all very cylindrical. Just the diversity of styles of houses in this and the, the, the people are also very different in, in many ways. What are some things you loved about the country, about the place and about the people? For a very long time, it was a very peaceful place to live. The fun thing that they would always say is the people would say this, this current regime has its pockets full. So it's actually trying to help us people. And so they were, they were content. They were happy people. Something that I love to talk about is Burkina Faso. The name of the country is derived from the land of the upright people. And so this is talking about the different kinds of people that live there. And they're always lower going back, saying that Burkina is one of these places that had more of a true utopian type society where there was a egalitarian type society long before it was colonized. The colonizers came in and kind of messed all that up. So give us a picture of what daily life would be like. We lived in a, a small village about three hours away from the capital. And so there are the big cities where you got the hustle and bustle, traffic and everything. Where we were, there was an overgrown crossroads. The days were pretty equal, six and 12 hour days, you know, six to six or seven to seven is when the days would start and you would get up. And for us, it would be early breakfast. And then I would spend some time out in the village of Dano where we lived. Uh, visiting friends, going to the hardware store to pick up a few items that I may or may not need, sitting and having tea with friends. And then uh, in the afternoons, late afternoons, we'd head out to the villages to meet with different people in the villages. That's kind of a, a, a normal day. It wasn't an easy place to live there. You know, we went over with no expectation of amenities. And we, when we got there, they had electricity and it was electricity 24 hours a day, seven days a week for a very long time, which was completely unexpected. And so that changed a lot of the ways we lived. It was exciting to see. You got to have some things that you wouldn't normally expect. So you talked about your day and from the sound of it, it sounded like maybe it was a little slower pace than what we experience here. Does that, does that sound accurate? That is perfectly accurate. So much so that this is a little difference between my wife and I. She grew up in a family system that was very regimented on time, kind of military background. And so, hey, if you say you're going to be gone for 30 minutes, you'd be gone for 30 minutes. 
flipping this to where we lived in Dono, it was very much a relational situation or once you're with that person, you're with that person. And I would go in, I mentioned going to the hardware store occasionally because things break because they always break. And so I would say, I have got to run to the hardware store, be back in a little bit. And that would be an expectation of 20, 30 minutes. So I would go away and then I would come back three hours later and she's like, where were you? And I was like, well, I went in town and I got to see, you know, Mr. Barry. And then I had to get, you know, go have tea with him. And then I had to stop at the hardware store and talk to all the people in the hardware store. And by the time I got back there, you know, the part was the, whatever was broken was still broken. And I finally got the part and could get it fixed. But in the interim, they were waiting and, you know, needing most likely water is tend to be the problem. So, so imagine if you will, that while you were there, Pete and I come to visit, what are you taking us to see? Where are we going? So you arrive in the Capitol and first you got to get to, you, you have to hear the name of the Capitol. It's Ouagadougou. And if you were an American, you would probably think it starts with a W, but it doesn't. It starts with an O-U-A-G-U-A, Ugu. And then, and so it's this big, long word that, that means it's the village of Waga. And so you land there. It's a large city. There's a lot of really interesting things in the capital, but we would probably whisk you away to Bobo Julasso, which is the second largest city in the country. It has some old mosques there that are from, from the 1900s. The really cool thing about these mosques is the spires going up are made out of mud. So they shoot up 40, 50, 60 feet in the air on all four corners, and they're made out of mud, and they just kind of tower up. And you can see the logs coming out where they would stand on the outside and build them up. And then each one of the spires, about half, halfway up the spire, is the uh, they have beehives up there. And so that would be one, one place to go visit. Another fun place to go visit would be kind of the sweet spot of Burkina, which is in the far southwest region, is Banfora, which is the one place with a waterfall. They also have these geological features, these rock features that are found nowhere else on Earth except in Australia. And they are similar makeups of rock. They were fashioned in a similar way, not built, but like hewn over time through wind and water and all this other kind of stuff. And so also in Benfora, when we're there, it has this waterfall at the base of these. It's the only waterfall really in Burkina. The really cool thing about that is it's large enough to get out and play in, but then there's also the hippos down there. And I never braved this. I saw this many times from the bank, but they, you could watch And these people would get in these dugout canoes. Some of them would have motors, some of them would not. And they would go out with their guides among the hippos. And if you know anything about hippos, they can go like 30 miles an hour in the water. And so it was just a harrowing thing. But there really is really a lot of cool things about Banfor. The only other thing that I would say that's notable in Banfor, it has a sugar, there's a large sugar cane crop there because of the water you can get and they can produce sugar. And so they have a sugar refinery and we went through that sugar refinery many times. And I learned a lot more about sugar than I thought that one could ever know. Like each individual refinery has their, the way it's the, they refine it. Each crystal is unique to that refinery. And so if there is a crystal, there's a sugar connoisseur, they could look at the crystals a lot of times and tell you where they were from. I was like, that's kind of crazy. Those are some of the places I would take you to go. So it seems like Wagadugu and Babadugu are from 
the same language, what language is it that they speak there in Burkina Faso, or what is the language of wider use there? There are 73 different languages spoken. The top four are going to be Moray, which is the Ugus means city of in Moray. And so that's what you're hearing a lot of. And then there's Fulani, which is in the northern area. Uh, they're, they're nomadic. That's kind of in the second largest language. Then you get down to Dagara, which is the language that we worked in. That's kind of the, the third largest. And then it kind of quickly you know, goes down from there. Like I said, there's 73 different languages varying in sizes. The language group that we worked with and lived among was about three to four hundred thousand people. Was there a noticeable difference in the cultures of the different people who spoke those languages or were they fairly similar? And I'm asking this to get around to asking what kinds of foods did they have? Because uh, I'm hungry and I want to know. <laughs> Because we talk about food. It's, our, it's, about it's food. probably our favorite topic. <laughs> there were very different. A lot. Sometimes it's based on the origins of the group. The Fulani people are mainly Islamic. And so they're going to be, uh, they're going to have some dietary restrictions that come into play there. Uh, then you're also going to see the Moray people. They're more of a rice, rice-based group. And as you get down in the Southwest where we are, they make a lot of stuff out of millet and corn and they make a paste out of it, you know, and it's kind of like these little jello mold type things and doesn't look very appetizing, but you make little spoons out of it in your hand and you dip it in the sauces and the sauces are what carry all the flavor. Okay. So tell us more about those sauces. Then. Yeah, I was going to say, tell what are the sauces that as a Westerner, I would need to be sure to consume while in country? Well, there's always the ones to start out with saying which ones you don't want to consume. And there's one that's an okra sauce. I don't know if you've ever had boiled okra before and you know what kind of consistency that is. If you're not careful, there's most sauces are leaf sauces of some variety, different trees, different plants, different things they can find. And so there's leaves in it always. But then if they put the okra in it, which grows pretty prolifically in this, this, this arid climate, and you pick it up in your little paste spoon and it would just slime down to back in the pot. And it'd just be like a giant little booger. And you'd have to have this little flip. You take your hand and you kind of flip it to kind of get it to kind of drop off. And then you could actually get it in your mouth and let it slide down your throat. It had really good flavor. If you were a texture person, you could not eat this. I am a texture person primarily. And yeah, that, that sounds difficult. To we, 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 uh, we had this ongoing joke or reality maybe of there are different kinds of food. There are foods that you can, you can stomach and tolerate, but there are some foods that are just psychological that just don't go past your throat. No matter what you do, they won't go there. And this was one of those for some people. It was one of those foods that are like, yeah, this isn't happening. They had a lot of really good leaf sauces, the baobab leaves. They would collect them during the little bit of time that they would grow. They had very, very good flavor. They had a lot of spices. They cooked it with a lot of little bitty peppers because peppers grow well in hot and very arid climates. It's spicy, leafy mixed in with this paste. And the paste has, think of the matzah around a, a tamale, you know, it doesn't have much of a flavor to take that down like three, three levels of flavor. And that's kind of what the, the paste was. There was really no flavor in the paste. Yeah. That's no flavor at all. Yeah. I love tamales, but uh, wow, I can't. You know, when I ask you about what I should consider 
you know, as a Westerner coming in and eating and, and two of the words that follow up are, are paste and booger. It's, it's really hard to make some dietary choices on that basis. <laughs> it really is. And these are some of the most hospitable people you ever, you will ever meet. And so you get out to the village and they sit you down and they're like, oh, good. Well, you're here to eat and they'll bring you food, even though they haven't asked, hey, are you hungry? Do you want anything? They'll bring you water. They'll bring you food. And you then feel like you're somewhat obligated to at least try some of this stuff. They had a lot of really good flavorful things. And some of my favorite little snacks, street food that they had, it was Sinsin. It's T-S-I-N-T-S-I-N. Sinsin is what they named that. And what it was is fried bean curds. And so they would take beans, red, uh, black beans, red, brown beans, and white beans and mash it up into a powder and then make it into a little paste and then drop these things into hot oil. And so you get these little fried, they're not coarse like hush puppies. They're kind of fine. And then they would serve it with a spicy salt. It was just at the end of the day, you're coming in off the trail and you sit down and they start preparing you some tea on your way through town and you get some of that and just really it hit the spot. And some of that stuff is some of the stuff you really meet. And then they had this sauce that would go with it. There was a leaf sauce called guada. And we lovingly called it Taco Bell sauce because even though it's full of leaves and full of different tomatoes and all these other little things that you would, wouldn't look at and say, oh, that's going to taste like Taco Bell sauce. But it, for us at that time, that's what it tasted like. And so we'd sit down and, you know, get 50 or 100 francs of sensen and just sit down and eat and totally ruin our dinner before we got home. So that was always fun. That sounds really tasty, actually. It was so. very tasty. Curious about animals, because, you know, when I think of Africa, well, I should say when I used to think of Africa, I used to always think of like safari and giraffes and lions and tigers and not so much bears. Um, oh, my. <laughs> but, you know, I, I know that uh, that's not in all of Africa. And also, I noticed as you were describing food, I didn't hear you talk about much about animals that would be part of the diet. So I'm kind of curious. Tell me a little bit about like, what's the wildlife like in the part of Burkina Faso that you spent time in? Wildlife when we were there was very minimal. You would hear stories of big lions, they kept on saying, but they also called our German shepherd a lion too. And so you kind of got to take that with a, a grain of salt. And so they did have the barkless, barkless dogs, which are famous in Africa. They are these kind of pointy nosed little mutts that are everywhere. But when they bark, they just don't make much of a sound. I mean, you hear dogs here and you, they just, or even the little chihuahuas, these dogs would bark and they would not make much of a sound at all. And so it was really interesting. There is a herd of about 300 elephants in Burkina, which is rare this far inland. And there was a park about an hour away, hour and a half away, and the elephants would go back and forth. They would kind of migrate up this one river back and forth. And so they would set places up and down the river to, to watch the elephants. And the park was Nazinga. And you can go into the park and drive your truck up next to the elephants and wave at them and see them get mad and frustrated and flap their ears at you and all kinds of crazy stuff. A lot of the other wildlife had been hunted out many, many years before us. There, were a lot, there was a lot of wildlife, but it had been hunted out long ago. If you go to the far eastern side of the country, there's a there's a park, a national park there called the Dublave, which is which used to have the last set of giraffes in West Africa that were indigenous to West Africa. They've they passed since a long time ago. And so it was one of the few last little things. 
And I learned a whole lot just outside the Quagadougou. There was an animal. There was a guy that had grew up, grown up in Burkina. He was Canadian. He grew up in Burkina and he'd stayed and he created an animal refuge. And he had red and black ostriches and the black ostriches are the ones indigenous to West Africa. He had all kinds of the warthogs and all of these different animals that you find throughout. And so it was really cool to see, you know, the tortoises, but the things that fascinated me to know in is he had porcupines, porcupines in the States that we have, they have the ends of the porcupines quills. A lot of the ones in the States have these little hooks on the end. So when they get shot, they go in and they hook and they don't come out. These porcupine quills were all perfectly straight. And so they would raise the animals, sell them for the porcupine meat, and then use the rest of it to make needles and other things. It was really kind of cool, the animal refuge that he set up. And then there are grass cutters. Grass cutters is this not exotic meat, but they're everywhere. They're prolific. They'd be like, we'd call them rabbits here. They yeah, I was mate. getting ready to ask you what that was, because in my head, a grass cutter is a lawnmower. Uh, uh. And <laughs> think of an overgrown guinea pig. Oh, Okay. Yeah. Large. And they get to, you know, three, four kilos and you can actually get a decent amount of meat off of them. Their germination cycle is really short. They're very prolific at recreation, at procreation. And so you can start a small little farm of grass cutters and you can support your family very well if you keep looking after them. I got to be honest, I'm still a little hung up on the barkless dog. As someone who owned a beagle for 17 years before she passed last year, it sounds a little bit heavenly to have a, a dog that doesn't bark because she barks incessantly. They are an interesting thing because you see them in large packs and you'll hear them growl and scuffle, but then when they turn around and start to bark, so someone walks by, they turn around and start barking. You, you see the bark and you expect to hear the noise and nothing. And sometimes if they try real hard, they can get a, <gasps> and so you can't tell if they're getting ready to throw up on you or actually trying to bark. So they would run around and the kids would, they, they didn't have the highest love for animals like, like we do here. And so kids would throw rocks at them. The dogs would yelp. You could hear them yelp all the time, but as far as barking, they just didn't bark. It was really interesting. They ran in packs and like any pack of dogs, you got to be careful. They're just wild. Just randomly, you have these like secret Some... ninja silent barfing dogs that you could come across and not hear coming that would ruin your day. Pretty much. Okay. But then occasionally when you're walking through the market, you would see the little grills set up. Think of open face barbecue pits. So you have charcoal going with the grill on top and you would see dog paws crossed with a head sitting on top. And that would tell you what kind of meat's on the grill that day. You pay attention to what's sitting on the corner of the grill before you purchase that street food. Where so, does street food you ever ate? Um, street food would have to be in Bojulasso, and it would be fried termites. They're crunchy, kind of like sweet tarts. You put anything in oil, put some salt and pepper, uh, pe uh, spicy salt on them. Not too bad. You know, I used to say that I'd eat anything if it was fried, but I, I'm, I'm, having, I'm having misgivings. <laughs> See, when you think termites, you're thinking these little things that aren't very big. I mean, these these termites were a good inch, inch and a half. And so they had some meat to them. They had some crunch. It was that just... supposed to make it better. I said that is not selling me on this experience. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so did you ever try the dog? Yes. And how was it? Wasn't bad. I won't say it tastes like chicken. Another fun 
food story is they kind of my well, some of my good friends in town, his name was Mr. Berry. We would always sit out at his place late in the evenings and sit and talk. And so we would have tea and he would send the kids off to go get meat and bring it back. And I was sitting there one evening and he says, I got some wild meat for you. Okay. What kind is it? I don't know the name in French. Okay. Is a formerly a French colony. So that was the language of wider communication for government offices and people that they held in high respect. And so that was a, usually a backup language. And then I said, okay, what about in Dagara, which is the language of the people that we worked on? He's like, yeah, I don't know in that language either. I'm like, okay, what about in Fulani, your language? She was like, yeah, I don't know it in that language either. I'm like, okay, describe the animal to me. So I'm trying to get a grasp on what am I actually going to be eating at this point? So I can say, is this something that is going to set well? And so he was always throwing things out there just to see if I would eat. Them. And he was like, well, it's the animal that has the the needles on its back. And I'm like a porcupine. He's like, yeah, a porcupine. I'm like, do you know what a porcupine is? No. And I'm like, okay, it's the animal that has the needles on his back. He's like, okay, we'll try the porcupine. That tasted like chicken and it was really good. And so, <laughs> but again, you have to go through a very long process to get, what am I actually eating? And it's, it's nice always to fun. know the next time that I see a porcupine, I will know that he tastes at least a little like chicken. They're good. Season them up. They come with their own skewers, right? They do. <laughs> so before you left to go to Burkina, you probably had some idea in mind of what you were going to see when you got there. I'm just wondering, like, what falls into the category of things you never thought you'd see? Let me paint a little picture for you. You guys know oil tankers, gas trucks that carry the gas fuel to the gas stations, big, long, usually nice polished silver. You drive by, you can see yourself in reflection. Think of that driving down the highway and then put steer standing upright on top of it, followed by a pack of goats standing on top of it. On that little narrow top portion that's kind of flat with little rails, they had a steer, they had a pack of goats, and about three pigs tied on top of that, on top of that tanker as it's driving down the road at, you know, 70, 80 kilometers an hour. We would call them chicken motos. And so these were little 80, 125 cc motos, little little motorcycles, and they're covered with chickens draped over every little place you can find to tie a chicken, and they would find more ways to to attach it. And the, probably the craziest thing I saw driving down the roadway would have been on one of these little 125 cc motorcycles, a coffin tied on the back with someone driving in the front. You have to get some. You have to get them there some way. They would wow. put more things on their motors, motos, and cars than one could ever know. Okay, so you mentioned there are seventy-three different languages, and it, with French as the language of wider use on top of that. So I'd have to think that somewhere in your mind there was at least sometimes that you maybe got things uh, mixed up, or maybe. Uh, struggled with some things. Are there any, you have any language blunder stories for us? Oh, that... there, there's always language blunder stories. And if you go out and you learn, you're learning a language and you don't have blunders. I just, it's, it's challenging to think that way. For me, I'm the type of person that I'm going to learn a little bit and try a lot. And so I'm perpetually making mistakes and it makes for great opportunities to laugh at oneself People really 
they were drawn to me because I was willing to try and I really enjoyed building relationships through through the language the <laughs> through language. And so you heard me talk about Mr. Barry. He's one of our good friends. He was illiterate in all five languages he spoke. And so he's because he's a tradesman, he worked, he had a little kiosk, a little shop in town where he sold some goods and he was a tailor. And so we spoke French, which was kind of a language of wider communication. Then there was Moray that I talked about earlier, which they actually call Mosi, which is can get confusing if you look in the East Africa, the, the Maasai people. And so you got to be real careful. It's the Moray people that speak the Mosi language. And then he spoke Fulani, which is the language that he grew up with. That's his, that's his, that's his mother tongue. And then he spoke Jula, which is another trade language that's mostly, mostly spoken in Western Burkina. And then he, he spoke uh, French, and by the time we were leaving, he spoke a little English too. So there are plenty of opportunities to mess up with language. One of my favorites is Dagara is a, little, is a tonal language. You got a high and a low tone. So there's two words that are really, really close. One is best friend, and the other way you say it is you got really big band parts. And so if you say it wrong, you say, hey, this is my best man parts, and you could really introduce good friends the wrong way. Oh my. And it was quite humorous to have those type of faux pas. And in a area that, that it has a lot of different languages like that, you, you kind of fluidly move in and out. If you can't find a word in Dagara or you would throw in the French word. And as we were learning Dagara, we would be talking with the different people you, you think you're making great progress in language. And so then you get to a point where you're stuck on a word. Okay. One of my favorite uh, words is we were, I was working with some of my friends on rebuilding some house stuff. And he's like, hand me the motto. And I was like, oh, that's French for hammer. I was like, so what is it in Dagara? And he's like, motto. I'm like, okay. And they're like, but if you want old Dagara, I'm like, sure, there would be some old Dagara. He goes, it's Hama. I just died laughing. It's like, that's not old Dagara. They're like, yeah, it is. It's really, it came from came from Ghana because they they migrated up from Ghana and there's still a large portion of Dagara people that live in the Ghana and live in Ghana. And so they're like, it is old Dagara. That's what old Dagara is. It's Hama. And I'm like, that's English. I'm sorry. <laughs> just laugh. There's also language stories where you get frustrated and run out of words. And this is one that I had to laugh at myself later. In Burkina, you get a phone line run to your house. This was before cell phones had really come in and taken over so you can get decent internet and all this other kind of stuff. And so you still had to have a landline to do internet. And the way they ran a landline is, is they found the closest pole that they had come to where you live. And then they would count, they put poles every so frequently, and then they would count by pole to get it out to your house. And then they would run the wire and they would finally get it out to your house. And this took several months to kind of take this in place. And they got like one pull away. And I was like, guys, you know, I've paid, I already paid my fun. I already paid my money. You can get it out to the next one. Why can't we go just the one more pull? They're like, oh, we miscalculated. So, you know, I, we went round and round back and forth and back and forth. And it was the culture stress. It was wanting to be able to communicate on a consistent basis, have this landline that didn't, re didn't require this. And I said, what I meant to say was, this is stupid. What I said was, you are stupid. 
which is a very, very different thing. <laughs> and when you say <laughs> to someone that's installing your phone line, you are stupid, they take it personally. And so what do they do? They cross their arms and they wait and they go away. And it cost us more money in the end because they, I called the guy stupid, not really meaning to. And my wife was sitting there listening. She goes, after everything was done, she goes, you called him stupid. I'm like, I did. I said, he, I said, it was stupid. This is stupid. And he just said, nope, you called him. He said he was stupid. And I'm like, oh, that's going to be a problem. So, <laughs> I mean, obviously relationships are important to you as a person just by the way you're talking about this. And you've mentioned some people that were very good friends of yours while there. I'm sure you probably missed some of those relationships. What other things do you miss about Burkina now that you're not there? You kind of hit on one of the things earlier on is a slower pace of life. The intentionality of when you're going, when you're with somebody, you're with that person. Mm. It's not on the way to something. It's not, it's not a pause. It's not a destination you're going to. So you're spending time with someone. You're, when you stop, you're with that person. There's an expectation you'd be present. You could be talking about the things roaming up and down the roads. You could be talking about, but it's the sitting and being present with people that made a difference. We would go into villages and so many times the important thing was that we showed up and that we sat. So we would go to these villages and we would meet people and they would have us come in and sit at these markets. And when I say market, I mean a lady with like three peppers, uh, about four tomatoes, and maybe a cucumber, maybe a guy with some smoked meat, maybe someone selling the Simpson that I talked about early, and then someone with a big bat of millet beer. And they would serve it warm. This is not the same as Miller beer, right? No, no, not Miller beer. This is millet beer. And they would brew it up, ferment it, and sell it in the markets. And it was a staple. This was one of the things that they would take in lieu of food, they would take out to the field. So they would ferment this, uh, the millet, and they would let it sit, and it would get this nice froth on top, and they would pour it up, and it was usually warm. But they would take a gallon radiator, little plastic jug, and they would fill it up, and they would take it to the fields with them and while they're going and hoeing the fields. And they would sip on that all day. It would keep them full so that they could eat early in the morning and they could eat late at night. There's a whole lot of jokes right around that, that I I can come back to about not drinking and hoeing, you know, there's, you know, people lose their feet all all the time. And so, but then you're serious. Yeah. (laughs) You get a little too much. You get a little tipsy. It wasn't very high alcohol content, but you've been drinking it all day towards the end of the day. It's been hot. You're in the sun. I'm not serious. Most people didn't have any, they didn't, they had most all, everybody had their feet, most everything. If there was an accident, it usually happened while. Uh, people were on motos or something else that wasn't while hoeing, but we would always joke about that. Don't, don't drink and hoe. So you come to this market and you show up and you sit down and you get this gourd. Think of this gourd that's been hollowed out and it's a big gourd and they fill it up to about three quarters of the top full of this millet beer that's warm, that's sour, that's fermented with the great expectation that you are going to drink it all. Granted, when I sit down and drink a beer, I drink a beer here. And so that's like eight, maybe 16 ounces at most. There had to be, this is like big gulp size gourd full of this stuff. We finally figured out a way to to get around that, but 
it was at the beginning, we didn't, we gave it away. We, we offered it to other people, but it was, there was a whole art to this drinking out of this gourd and how do you swirl it around so that you don't get a big foamy spot in your mouth. And I won't say I grew to like the millet beer. I grew to tolerate the millet beer. And so, so there are obviously modern conveniences that you leave behind when you go to a place like that from the States, but I'm wondering did you actually miss anything while you're away? And if so, what, what kinds of things did you miss? Some of the things that we missed, I think tended to have to do more with people than things. Cause we actually lived pretty well. We had a, I mean, we had a house with tile on the floor. We had, because air, because electricity came, we actually had air conditions. We didn't have it throughout the whole house, but we had air conditioners in the bedrooms. And that was something that's not typical for a lot of folks that live in West Africa. And so we actually lived what we would consider pretty well. You know, there were, there was days where it'd be like, oh, there's that food that I, you know, there's that restaurant that I'd love to go to or this. And it was a matter of nostalgia, missing people at different times than more than, hey, this is something that I'm really, really missing. I'm probably thinking nowadays, you know, when I was back there in 17, there's a lot of differences now that I think would be, you know, now that I've been here for, been in the States, that it would be harder to go back and live there, but there's still a lot of benefits to uh, of living in a, in a slower paced culture like that. Okay, so you kind of uh, answered my next question, but what did you not miss about the states whenever you were over there? Definitely the fast paced culture. Uh, when we came back, uh, my wife and I we talked a lot about this, but we made a conscious effort to try to live more slowly with life. We didn't pack the kids schedule with every little, every event that they could do. We didn't pack our schedules with everything we could do. And we were very intentional about that because it's very easy to get caught back up in a fast paced life. We have a lot of boundaries and we have a lot of downtime and quiet time in our house. That is, would be very atypical of a lot of American households because of living that way. Didn't miss the consistent traffic that you have to drive in. When I was in the capital, there was all kinds of crazy traffic that would probably make most people here very trepidatious in driving, where you have two to four lanes of traffic in the middle going opposite directions. So two lanes going each direction. And then on the sides, you have motorcycle lanes. And it's not just a motorcycle. They're not in single file lines. It's about four abreast, all going and they're weaving in and out. And then you get to a point where you have to turn across that traffic. It's absolutely nuts trying to drive. And then you have, you know, the chicken mobiles or chicken motos coming along with chickens are flapping and causing all kinds of chaos. And so there's all kinds of driving obstacles in, uh, in Burkina that I don't miss about that. But also here in the States, I don't, uh, on the interstate to get to work is something I probably wouldn't miss. So you talked about being very intentional about slowing your pace of life down here. Are there any other ways that your life was affected or changed? How are you a different person now than you were before you were there? I think I went over with a lot more confidences that I had it figured out, that uh, we knew what we were going to do. We had a plan. And I think being there helped us see that if you're going to serve a people, you must meet the people where they are, not expect them to be where you want them to be. And then you must listen to them. 
and some of the best conversations. And I have some close friends that are still there. And a lot of it came from that intentionality, but sitting and listening to life from their perspective changes your perspective in different ways. Hearing how they were raised in large communes, you know, large family units in a small area, seeing what they value and seeing, and that changed a lot of what are the things that we value? What are the things that we see as important? And I think while I had propensities of being highly relational before I left from growing up with a, with a strong family unit, I think being over there increased that desire to be, to have stronger, fewer, stronger relationships, deeper relationships, community lived out in a way that you can only find within times when you have a small network of community to live out community in. And it really, you know, it, it let me think about what we were over there doing church planning and let me think about what would a New Testament church look like in this setting and how that made me think about what it would look like then back in the day that they were there and how is that closer to this setting than it is in where we are in America. So it did, it did affect my worldview in, in many, many different ways. Thank you for sharing that. That's really cool. So one of the things we'd love to ask of all these people that we get to talk to who have so much international experience is if you got to go somewhere for two weeks, all expenses paid, somewhere the, though that you've never been before, where would you go and why would you pick there? I would probably want to go to the Maldives. And it's this island's place and you got to take... You take it to a, a, you fly into a neighboring country and then you take another puddle jumper over to a different country. And then you go out to these islands and then all of the accommodations are over, over the water. And it's just this crystal blue water. It's just completely tourist. Why would I want to go there? If it's an all expense paid trip, it sounds really cool. And it just looks really relaxing. It looks like it would be a lot of fun. And we were living in France, my wife and I, this is before we had kids. And one of the few English channels we had was CNN. And they would always play these random hot, you know, touristy spots that we don't hear about over here in the States, but Maldives was one of them. And then come to Malaysia, truly Asia, you know, they'd have all these little things, but the Maldives was one of the ones that really stuck. Sounds really good. All right. Well, Phil, I think it's time for our next segment. It's time for another Vicarious Encounters Top 5. All right. And this week, our top five is our top five favorite outdoor activities. Number five. So my number five is actually disc golf. I love playing disc golf. I am wildly terrible at it, but that doesn't stop me. The primary thing it has over regular golf is that it's free to do and that and that is a significant uh, thing to me but i am equally bad at it as i am at regular golf but it is always a good time and actually we sort of have a family tradition of once it hits summertime here we go out on sunday afternoons after church and after lunch and play around my uh my father-in-law and my brother-in-law and so some great times doing that well, originally when I did my list, I had caving as number five because I used to love doing that. But I, I realized it had been a long time since I did it. And 
I promise I did not copy off you, but I, I actually uh, rethought it and I decided to put down disc golf. And for me, it's just, it's great context for conversation. I love being outside. You just have hours outdoors with a buddy and it's just a good time. Uh, and it's not particularly stressful, but it is just enough competitive to be interesting. And I guess number five for me, I would say disc golf. No, uh, I enjoy disc golf, but I probably wouldn't put it up there. I probably would go with some kind of kayaking, canoeing, kind of boat on the water. You know, whitewater rafting could fall into that too, where you're going down some chutes and other things. Like my undergrad is at South, which is now Texas State University. And it's right there on a, a freshwater spring right there in the middle of campus. And so we had all kinds of water activities all the time. And so it was always fun. That sounds wildly convenient. I like it. It was. Number four. Okay. My number four is cycling. I really like to get out on my bike and go around. And probably there are people who are way fancier with their cycling and everything else uh, than I am. But I really just like to get on my bike and to ride around. Our town has a really solid uh, set of trails. And I really enjoy doing that. And it's been one of those things, like even when I was, when I was a kid, I would, you know, bike all around town in the town I grew up in. And it sort of just continued to be one of those things I wanted to do when I was outside. My number four, it's tempting to put kayaking, but I, I literally just went kayaking for the first time a couple of weeks ago. So I feel like it's a little premature for me to go there. Uh, so I'm going to have to say whitewater rafting. And I, I love the range of activity that whitewater rafting can, can encompass. Because, I, you know, if you're on uh, level two or level three uh, rapids, you know, it's okay. But you have long stretches where it's relatively easy. But I did once in my life have the experience to go class five whitewater rafting. And mm. that is an adventure. <laughs> like, really, you'd really do think to yourself, I might die, which is super exciting and a little nerve wracking. <laughs> Uh, for me, I'm going to go snow sports. And so I'm going to go skiing, snowboarding, tubing, sledding type stuff. I really enjoyed that. Done, did that for a lot of years, but through my college years, take ski trips. And so I always enjoy going up to the mountains and hitting the slopes. Number three. All right. My number three is running. I actually... Uh, one of my big regrets in life is that I did not start running until I was in my 30s, and I wish that I had started sooner. It is such a great time to be alone with my thoughts and focused on nothing else. You know, my body is doing its thing, and I can kind of put my brain into neutral and just enjoy the time and the serenity, and I can't really get that feeling doing anything else in the same way. Uh, my number three is, I, I said trail running. I, I do enjoy running, but there's something about running on a trail that is particularly that for me. I feel like in, I not only get the, the effect that you're talking about with running, but I get to be in the great outdoors and see beautiful things. And uh, this is not a paid advertisement for Ragnar, but I've had a tremendous experience with a group of people doing trail Ragnars. I think this is what, like our fourth or fifth year, something like doing that. And uh, just a, a great group experience. Uh, so I think that's probably my number three. I am not nearly dexterous enough for trail running. I would probably fall and die. Oh, we did. We did There's fall. no dying, but yeah, there was definitely a lot of falling going on. I put my number three as hiking, and I'm going to do a hiking slash trail running. And the reason I kind of put them kind of equal 
I spent a lot of times in in the mountains growing up through my college years. And there's a, to me, hiking, trail running kind of went hand in hand. You know, you would run for a little while, you would hike for a little while, you just do this combination. And so like Pete, you get out, you see, you do, you get to just be in the, uh, being in nature in that way. There's a lot. Number two. All right. My number two is actually uh, walking and I put it up there higher because I do it more than I do any other outdoor activity. It is something that my wife and I do together uh, on almost a daily basis. Whenever the weather permits, we don't live in an area that has any, any great walking around, you know, out in the woods, anything you would consider hiking or anything like that. So we just walk a lot. We walk our neighborhood and we'll do multiple miles in a day. And in the summertime, I certainly will. And there is, there's something about the slower pace that, that puts it just above running for me. Um, it doesn't, yeah, it's a, it's a different vibe. You wouldn't think so, but it's really a different vibe, but doing it with my wife is also a big part of that. Yeah, I, I get that. And I, I put my number two hiking. So that, uh, I just, some of the most beautiful places I've ever seen that I got from hiking there. And there is something very different about the experience of hiking to the top of a mountain as opposed to driving to the top of it. It's just, it's not the same at all. When, when you have to, when you have to spend hours working to get there, there is something deeply satisfying about the view from the top. Uh, my number two would be biking, either road or mountain biking. I like them both. I've done them both. I don't get to do much outdoor biking these days. I ride on a trainer in my garage for safety reasons. Around here, we don't have the nice trail that you can ride on and not get run over. And I think the Dallas DFW area, they, they think of you as targets and see how many points they can get by how many how many bikers they can hit. So, And now, number one. And finally, my number one is hiking. And it's just above walking for me because, you know, you're putting out a little, you're putting out significantly more effort if you're in good places to do it. Um, but like Pete said, all of the coolest places I've been to or almost all the coolest places I've been to, I've gotten there on my feet on a trail hiking. In one of our other episodes, I talked about Kenai Fjords National Park and hiking to the top of that mountain to stand at a glacier. And it still ranks as the coolest hike I've ever done. And you know, even though it was pouring down rain on us, I would do it again in a heartbeat. It just, yeah, I love it. I love it so much. And I'm going to say my number one is volleyball. I love volleyball and outdoor volleyball, whether it's played on sand or grass, is just, it's a fantastic sport. I love the team element of it. Uh, I love the competitive nature of it, but I love it so much. I, I have fun even if I lose. And for me, that's that's the judge of a great sport, one that you can you don't have to win to enjoy playing. Uh, I've done done this for years, and it just never disappoints. It almost doesn't seem to matter who the group of people is, as long as it's somebody I enjoy being with. It's a great community experience. Enjoy playing some with my family. It's just a lot of fun to do outdoors. And for me, my number one would be backpacking. In contrast to hiking, this is a multi-day trek where you're going out. And with me, I try to usually put some kind of summit attempt in there. And so backpacking, it's just a little bit, I see it a little bit, it is hiking, 
but it's hiking and you're out for several days. So you're carrying everything that you need and you're just out. And there's just great joy having that, just being in nature and usually getting to places where not a lot of people have gone and it's quiet and it's just you and the people you're with. All right. Well, that is our top five for the week. What a good one. Enjoyed that. Uh, it makes me want to go outside as soon as we're done. And our next segment is Unpopular Opinions. Are you ready? It's time for Unpopular Opinions. All right. So <clears throat> every week we give a choice to our one of our guests uh, or, or me or Phil comes up with something that we think is likely to be an unpopular opinion and uh we, we enjoy disagreeing and i hope we can find ways to disagree without being disagreeable this week's unpopular opinion is mine now i have to confess before i say this is an unpopular opinion i'm not actually sure how unpopular or popular this is when i when this comes up it always seems controversial to me and i usually keep my mouth shut because i don't want to start an argument but my unpopular opinion is everyone should own Bitcoin. Now, this is one of those things kind of like whether you like Apple or Android in some ways, it seems like people are, are, are pretty rabid when it comes to opinions about this stuff. But I kind of feel like we are in a uh, an economy now where it just makes sense to diversify your investments. And Bitcoin, now granted, uh, you know, I, I got a buddy of mine that refers to it as magic internet money. <laughs> and I, I have to freely admit, I, I cannot satisfactorily explain what Bitcoin is. So it there is a sense in which it kind of uh, feels like investing in snake oil, but I think it is a good idea and I think everyone should give it a shot. I think it sounds fake. One of my good friends listens to a podcast and I don't even know what the podcast host is, but like one of the one of the things he talks about how is how he had he mined a bunch of Bitcoin and it's on a hard drive and he lost the hard drive. See, that's not real money to me. If you can lose the money by losing a hard drive, that's not real money. I don't understand it. It feels fake. And part of me is honestly, you know, one step from wanting to just go ahead and get gold doubloons and stuff them into my mattress. I'm somewhere in the middle. I just don't understand it well enough to say, yeah, this is something everybody should be doing. I understand the, the point of diversifying and there's a lot of ways to diversify. I kind of like with Phil, it sounds or something like one of your buddies, Pete said, it sounds like magic money. When you mine for something in the, you know, interspace world, internet world, and I just don't get it. And so it's not that it's not good. I think it's, I think that the, this way is moving. But I think in the same way that Bitcoin is growing, the non-fungible, what is it, NFTs? And NFTs? Yeah, uh, that one is tokens, even alluding. Token. Yeah, non-fungible token. That one's even further out. Oh, that's craziness to me. Just yeah. absolute craziness. Yeah, it's, let's make this image and all of a sudden it's, it has value. But if I right click and hit copy and then paste on that image, it has no value. See, right. see, that's the whole thing. There's like this weird group thing going on where a bunch of people got together and said, we're going to call this thing Bitcoin and we're all just going to pretend it has value. And as long as everyone goes along with it, it does. But what happens when everyone decides that it doesn't have value anymore? You know what I'm saying? And like, what stops that from happening? Like, I understand that. Uh, how the government monetary system works. I don't think necessarily that it works well, but at least I understand it conceptually, right? I don't understand why we all just agreed that Bitcoin has value. 
One important differentiation from between Bitcoin and a lot of other cryptocurrency is that Bitcoin has a limited supply. It's not like an NFT where you can right click and save and have something that's essentially the same. There, there actually is a limited number and that scarcity is part of what makes it so that Bitcoin, at least in theory, makes a more stable asset. You know, the problem with the economies of so many countries and the United States is now one of them is if we just need more money, we just print more. And so that, but that dilutes the value of the money that's already out there. Whereas with Bitcoin, my understanding is that that can't be done because of the way it's structured. But who decided that? Like, where did this number come from? This finite amount? Who said this is the amount there's going to be? That's what I don't understand. I'm like, who has that much power? That's really weird to me. You see how volatile it can be just going up and down, up and down. There's a commercial I've seen recently where you see from day to day, the guy's like, woo, I'm a millionaire. Woo, no, I don't, you know, lost everything. Woo, I'm a millionaire because it's all in Bitcoin. You know, it's just very, very mm -hmm. volatile. One final confession. One of the reasons that I think everybody should own Bitcoin is it will make my Bitcoin worth more money. See, there you go, right there. You just want everyone <laughs> in on the group thing. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> it, it feels like a Orwellian delusion to me. All right. Well, in my mind, my bank account's not much different these days. It literally is, so far as I'm concerned, just a number on a screen. I, I don't ever see cash. I don't even write checks anymore. I just like click, 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 and my bills are paid. Fair and enough. It, it, it works just like Bitcoin. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, thanks so much for joining us for another episode of Vicarious Encounters. It's been great having you with us today. All right, Phil, how can our listeners get connected with us? Well, if you would like to comment to us about something that's happened on an episode you've heard, if you have a top five you would like us to discuss, if you have an unpopular opinion you would like us to uh, bandy about, you can do that by emailing us. You can send us those thoughts at vicariousencounters at gmail.com. You can also find us on our Facebook page for Vicarious Encounters. And as the episodes drop, we put the episode link on that Facebook page. And so that post is a great place to get connected and get involved and get the discussion started. You can also find us on Instagram. And if you check out our Instagram, you'll see that we have really cool pictures from our guests of the places they visited. So you can get um, a little bit of a sense of what that world was like visually, as well as hearing about it. You can also find us on Twitter as well. And if you're ever listening to an episode and you're thinking to yourself, man, these guys have a really good concept, but they sound low budget. Well, that's because we're low budget. But if you'd like to help fix that, we have a Patreon account set up and you can help take us from low budget to not quite as low budget. I mean, we're really kind of no budget right now. So you're really bringing us from no budget to low budget. Okay, that's fair. Archie, thanks so much for joining us today. It was great having you. Uh, I have learned exponentially more about Burkina Faso than I knew going in. Thanks for your willingness to share some of your stories and your time with us today. I enjoyed it. Thanks for having me on, guys. All right. And you will hear from Pete and I next time. See you later.